Good morning. Let's look at a few announcements. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. 1 Peter, verse 1 through 8. Tonight we're continuing our DVD series on evangelism in America. Not necessarily the good kind of evangelism. Uh, it's, it's really an eye-opener to see how the different doctrines of faith uh, have an impact on not just the youth, but the, uh, the senior mind as well. So it's well worth coming out and seeing. So we encourage you to come. Uh, next Sunday is our communion service. No dinner, no evening service. Prayer meeting, Wednesday evening at 7 o'clock. Andrea is still our contact number for the prayer chain. You have her number there? Change. You have a new number? Well, temporarily, text our home phone number or call our home phone number. I killed my phone again. Um, so that number, it'll answer, but I can't get any text or anything like that. So if our home, my home phone number is in the um, directory, directory, but if you need it, it's <clears throat> 810 545 7178. And if you need to be repeated, I'll tell you after service. But sorry. Excellent. In March, <clears throat> we are going to an escape room where we will race the clock to solve a mystery as a team. All interested people sign up on the helps board, ages junior high and up. Um, who, who's been to the escape room before? Okay, so so what happens if you don't if you don't? Uh, you get blocked. They throw away the key. You, so essentially, if you don't get out, you die, right? <laughs> kind of like real life. So you got to figure it out, uh, and you get clues and and all that. So is it? But they laugh at you and mock and deride you in the meantime. That sounds like something for me. Okay. New acts and facts are here. Uh, you see them in the foyer. Uh, days of praise as well uh, for the next quarter. Uh, we have a couple of things here. 
2019 SGBA Ladies Retreat. It's a hot ticket this, this spring. So uh, speakers, Dr. Amy Baker. I don't know much about her, but uh, uh, she's spoken before, before the retreat, hasn't she? That you know of? I don't know. No? Uh, she's at the Counseling Center in Lafayette, uh, Indiana. Yeah. And uh, got her degree in, in counseling and stuff. Well, sounds like she knows what she's talking about. Brochures are on the uh, so. foyer table out there. And uh, somebody made an unfortunate comment about our brother George McLeod when they saw the dinosaurs <laughs> on, the, on the thing. So I guess to follow up with that, would we'll just say his family's in town. <laughs> so just just to keep it stirred up. So for March. Okay. <clears throat> Have I forgotten anything uh, from for uh, information? Okay, our scripture for meditation is uh, taken from the book of First John four, verses seven through twelve, and that would be nineteen o two in your pew Bible. Just stand with us as we begin our service of prayer. <clears throat> Brother Dale, would you lead us, please, in the opening? I will. Our God and our Father, once again, how thankful we are that, that you've drawn us here to be gathered in your name. Um, dear Lord, you know us each individually. All of 
our struggles, all of our sins, and our ailments. We know the things we're, we're asking, that we're requesting of you. We ask that you be with each one individually today. Be with our pastor as he brings the word and strengthens us as a congregation. That as when we leave this afternoon, that, that we have a little more knowledge of our Savior and Lord Jesus. That we could uh, that we could try to walk a closer walk with Christ. And uh, this is my prayer. Amen. Good morning. You take your brown hymnals and turn to number 410, 410 in the brown. <clears throat>
Dr. Ed, the first hand that I saw that wasn't my daughter's. 521 in the brown. And do we have a, um, a reason for this hymn this morning? Happy tune for happy time. Happy tune for happy Okay. 521. <clears throat> scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 6 through 12. And that would be 1887 in your pew Bible. Would you please stand with us as we recite this? (coughs) 
I'm in the wrong chapter already. <clears throat> I apologize for this. Got a little discombobulated this morning. First <clears throat> Peter one. Six through twelve. <clears throat> In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. And may the Lord bless this holy and inspired reading. Take your brown hymnals once more and turn to number 275, 275 in the brown.
Our scripture text is found in 1 Peter chapter 1. Last Lord's Day, we examined the temporary trials that we face in this life and why they are to be viewed as temporary. We learned that our trials are mollified by the inner joy that we have in light of the coming complete salvation which Christ has secured for us. We studied the different aspects of our salvation. A lot of future aspects yet to come. Which Peter uses to comfort his suffering people. The point being that none of our trials are comparable to the salvation that is to come. He also points out that our present trials are just for a little while. You know, speaking of all of eternity. Little in significance. But yes, also little in duration. That is to say there's a built-in deadline to all of our trials and God himself keeps them short to preserve us with, his, with uh, the trials providing a way of escape that we may be able to endure them. So built into the trial is a doorway, a hatch, a way out, a way of escape. We also consider the reason for trials. Number one, they are just a necessary part of life in a cursed world. It's going to be that way until there is a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. But that's not our world today, that's for sure. And secondly, they're necessary instruments to perfect our faith and our love for God. We become mature through trials. Just think of a person that, that nothing ever bad ever happens to them. We say of people like that, well, you, you just don't know what life is all about. And there's a sense in which that's true. Because life consists of trials. People born with a silver spoon that doesn't seem to have anything to worry about don't know much about that. Well, today we want to study... The love that goes with the Christian in loving his God, his Savior, which he's never seen. You've heard the expression, seeing is believing. Well, with us who are Christians, we see by the eye of faith. And we don't see a physical Jesus, but we see by the eye of faith and we believe. So let's pray and ask for the Lord to show us how this is so vital uh, to the Christian experience. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for its truthfulness. We thank you that you have come to us by your Holy Spirit to grant us faith, to open our eyes, the eyes of our heart, we would say, to allow us to see the unseeable from human eyes, and unseeable from the standpoint of the unbeliever who just kind of wonders at 
what all of our devotion is about. Well, we know what it's about because of your spirit, the truth that you have given to us by the word of God. But for the unbeliever who doesn't believe the word of God, doesn't read it, doesn't pray over it, doesn't have the Holy Spirit for discernment, it's all just so much foolishness. But I pray, Lord, that it's not foolishness to us. Bless the truth of your word and sanctify us in the Holy Spirit using your word. For the glory of Jesus, we pray these things, but also for our good, we pray these things. Amen. We're looking this morning at the subject, loving the unseen Savior. When I say unseen, I'm talking about unseen to our physical eyes. A love for God the Son whom we have never seen with our physical eyes. Love in our world is very much associated with physical sight. When you think about it, we love what we see. And this is so much a known fact about human nature that the marketers place a lot of emphasis in their advertising on the visual, don't they? The promoters of auto sales do not simply hand a microphone to a person who has a good command of the English language and the ability to articulate the virtues of a particular vehicle and then record his or her conversation. No. Usually Mr. Voice or Miss Voice, as the case may be, is in the background somewhere saying very little while the whole ad is about showing the beauty, the sleekness, the power of the car that's being promoted. I mean, even in printed ads, pictures comprise nearly nearly 100% of the page. You have just a few short descriptions at the bottom. And everything from automobiles to hairspray to clothing to electronics to food to housing and so on, everything is marketed this way. Why? Well, some say it's because Americans are not very good readers. But that's not the reason. The real reason is that we fall in love with what we see, if what we see is appealing to the eye. True, other factors enter in, like price, availability, durability, popularity, practicality, but the bottom line is if we like something we see, We're prone to buy it, to want it. This is also the case with less tangible things like love. I know we use the word love in rather loose ways when describing material objects. I've heard people say, I just love my new car. (laughs) Or don't you love my new hairdo? (laughs) But in these cases, we are not really suggesting that we have an emotional attachment to our car or our hairstyle, but we are saying, I really, really like my new car, or whatever. So love is put for like in these instances because we view the word as the epitome of like. 
It's our way of telling others how much we like the object under consideration without sounding like a parrot. I really, 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 really like mine. Whatever. <laughs> you fill in the blank. So we just say, I love my whatever. Yet that said, have you heard any time anyone say, I took one look at her, I took one look at him, and it was love at first sight. Well, maybe it wasn't love at all. Maybe it was lust. Or maybe it was infatuation because of the charismatic draw of a person's physical features. But the word that we use is nonetheless love. And many a person has discovered, perhaps too late, that what they thought was love was little more than a physical attraction, and in the end, good looks was no substitute for good manners or good integrity or good behavior. Now, with all this weight on the physical and the visual and the tangible, how strange then for Peter to say of Jesus to the believers of his day, Though you have not seen him, Jesus, you love him. It's a different twist, isn't it? And the world is confused by this. You Christians claim to love a God whom you have never seen. How is that possible? The idolaters of the world, why do they have their idols? Because they want a God they can see and touch and feel and pick up and carry wherever they want to go. Now we come along with the Christian faith and we're talking about a love for a God that we have never seen. How is this possible? It's utterly incredible that we should love someone we have never met or experience on the physical, material plane. Now, it's not quite the same as the world's love affair with entertainment or Hollywood figures. The Oscars are coming tonight. I'm thinking of that. Oh, I just love the actor Brad Pitt. Or I love the music of Mariah Carey. It's not the same, because even though... They have never met these entertainers personally. They have seen pictures of them or videos of them or movies by them. And they know them to be contemporaries living in our society. But we make no claim, nor can we, concerning Jesus. He is not a contemporary of our day. In Peter's day, Jesus was never... Never made it to, verse 1, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, or Bithynia. None of those places. No, with the exception of a short stay in Egypt as a child, when Mary and Joseph fled the sword of King Herod, 
Jesus lived his whole life within the confines of Palestine. And that Peter's writing to these believers in these various provinces, they never saw Jesus. And he says, whom you've never seen, but you love. Wow. So, well, maybe some of the Jewish citizens of Peter's audience had heard Jesus speak if they traveled to Jerusalem during one of the holy days. Well, even if that were so, it wouldn't be the majority of his readers that he's writing to. No, for the most part, the physical Jesus was never seen by them. Yet they loved him. They loved him. We share this same characteristic. Actually, many centuries have passed since the resurrection and ascension of Jesus back to glory, but that has not dulled our capability to love the Savior we have never seen. And by seen, I'm talking about our physical eyes. So how is it possible that we can love Christ? Well, that's point two. We love because we believe. Look at verse eight. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. You believe in him. Faith in Christ evidences itself by love for Christ. Paul writes, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor circumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Galatians 5 verse 6. God's complaint against Israel was this. And it's Hosea that's writing this. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There's no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. Hosea 4 verse 1. Isn't that interesting? No faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God. Jesus' complaint against the religious teachers of his day was this. If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, now am here. And I'm not come on my own, but he sent me. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. John 8, verse 42, verse 45. No faith, no love. It's the way it works. The point is that loving Jesus is impossible apart from believing in him. And the proof of faith is obedience. Obedience is also the proof of our love of Christ. I've had people say to me, well, you know, I love Jesus or I love God. But as we talk more about their life and their behavior and so forth, they become angry because they disagree with the fact that love for the Savior is evidenced by obedience to Him. 
They think they can love him without obeying. But obedience is the love child of faith. Jesus put it this way. If you love me, you will obey what I command. John 14, verse 15. Or again, verse 21, same chapter, John 14. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Oh, and one more time, John 14, verse 23 and 24. Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him And make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. So, three times in one chapter, John 14, Jesus defines love for him as obedience to his commands. And then he ends the dialogue by saying, He who does not love me will not obey. My teaching. Now I keep that in mind and I use that when I'm witnessing to people and then they come and they they come back and they say, Well, I love God. And then we start talking about obedience to Christ and His Word. And they soon discover they have no credentials, just words. John put it this way, this is, love to, this is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. 1 John three 5, verses 3 and 5. So faith is demonstrated by love, and love is demonstrated by obedience. We can have kind of a uh, domino effect here, or circular, if you please. We love Christ because we believe in him. Belief in him does not require physical sight, but it does require the sight of faith. Faith is proven by obedience to Jesus' teaching, obedience to his teaching demonstrates love for Christ. Now, if any of these pieces is missing from the scenario, the whole confession of love becomes bogus and it collapses like a house of cards. Jesus put it this way. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do what I say. I will tell you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood came and the torrent struck his house, but it could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not 
put them into practice. It's like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Luke chapter 6, verse 46 and following. So my question is, is your hope of salvation based upon your profession? Oh, I love Jesus. Or is there some actual evidence in your life, the evidence of putting into practice the words and the teachings of Christ that prove your faith, that prove your love for him? Salvation in our day, folks, has been so reduced and reduced and reduced in substance to simple acknowledgement, well, I believe in God or I love Jesus, that people are convinced and bad preachers help to convince them. We're learning that in our series on Sunday night. That all they need do is say it is so for it to be so. That's this word of faith movement that we're studying on Sunday night. Just Say it and claim it. As though our words were like the words of God. Let there be light and so there was light. But you know, Jesus himself tells us he's not buying these empty and shallow confessions. Let me read it for you. These are his words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Matthew 7, verse 21 and following. Notice that even the ability to do the miraculous or to preach or to exercise power over demons is not assurance that a person truly believes in or loves Christ. That's what's so deceptive to the onlooker, and that is what is so self-deceptive to the person who may possess these abilities. As onlookers, we tend to be wowed by the miraculous. But Jesus taught false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect if that were possible. Matthew 24, 24. And is it not obvious in this Matthew 7 text that those who come to Christ with nothing more than these credentials, namely that they had prophesied or preached, they had cast out demons, they had done miracles in Jesus' name, are still self-deceived. 
They thought of themselves as shoe-ins for the kingdom of God. But Jesus read their hearts, knew that religion for such things was simply a means of financial gain or some other lesser motive. And scriptures abound warning us against deception. Paul writes in Romans 16, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teachings that you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Romans 16, verse 17, 18. If you're in the study on Sunday night, we're listening to some of these quote-unquote evangelists, and look at their crowds. It isn't 30 people like sitting here this morning. Like 3,500 people. And they're just eating it up. Tell us more. And I'm sitting there thinking, deceive us more. For that's what's going on. But there's no discernment. For those who think they can indulge in all sorts of sin and still be saved, Paul responds, for this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance... In the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Wow. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Ephesians 5. Do you know that God holds you responsible? He holds me responsible for what we hear and believe. Hear and believe. We're going to hear some heretical things in our day. It doesn't mean we have to fall for it and believe it. In writing to the church at Colossae, Paul explained, My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and I delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted, built up in him, strengthened in the faith that you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition 
on the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Colossians 2, verse 2 through 8. So again, and again, and again, the Bible authors join Jesus in warning us against deception from false teachers. But the cruelest deception is that of self-deception. When we convince ourselves that we're right with God because of a certain religious exercise that we go through. James put it this way, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. James 1 verse 22. So here you are this morning listening to God's word as I preach. It's good that you're here listening. It's better if you're learning. But listening and learning isn't the same as believing and trusting. It isn't the same as repenting and seeking forgiveness. And it's a far cry from loving the Lord of the message. One day Jesus was teaching and a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. The Roman Catholic would say, yeah, that's Mary. That was Mary. What did Jesus say on this occasion? Let me read it for you. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Luke 11, 27, 28. Something more valuable than just being born and nursed by a good and godly woman. Paul writes, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature he will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Galatians 6, verse 7 and 8. Bottom line, we are warned not to be hoodwinked by others who make claims for God who do not know him. And we are cautioned against self-deception in which we believe we are right with God because we do have a certain religious interest in our lives and we give ourselves to those interests. That's scary. The question is, do you love Christ? Do you rejoice in Christ? Verse 8, filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. And if so, then you are receiving the goal of your faith, namely the salvation of your souls. We get sidetracked into lesser things where Christ kind of pushed aside. Don't ever push Christ aside for religious things. That's what Rome does. So all the uh, cults do. If they say anything about Christ, it's on a lesser plane. He's over here. They're all into their 
what what it is ever there is that they're doing to earn salvation. Now there is a harvest that comes for loving Christ. He says in verse 8, inexpressible and glorious joy. Inexpressible, glorious. I think that's a strange thing to tell people who, verse 6, are suffering. Grief in all kinds of trials, says Peter. Did I read that right? Grief in all kinds of trials. How does that compute with inexpressible and glorious joy just two verses later? How can people be filled with glorious joys of such magnitude that it defies expression when they're suffering so much? Well, there's suffering now and then there's suffering to come. Our society is so attuned to the pleasures of life that any kind of present-day suffering becomes anathema. And every effort will be made by man to alleviate or totally eradicate it. Some think it's strange, for example, that a patient suffering severe pain and admitted to the hospital would receive a doctor's orders of no pain medicine. Oh, but doc, I'm in pain here. You have to give me something for this. And the doctor responds, if I give you pain medicine... It'll mask your symptoms. It'll hinder my diagnosis of your problem. So you just have to bear up a little bit till we find out what's wrong with you. Wow. We have to admit that we are like this as well when it comes to pain and suffering. Sore arm muscle, get the liniment. Throbbing headache, pop the aspirin. Throw your back out, see doc afterwards none of this is wrong in itself but it does demonstrate that we are creatures who despise pain and will do anything to alleviate it my parents both of them father and mother suffered severely from kidney stones I doubt very seriously if we had kidney stone lodged in our urethra that we would say, oh, how wonderful. I've been looking forward to not being able to raise my head above the floor for a long time. And I've, I've, saw, I've seen both my mom and my dad down on the floor just trying to gain their equilibrium, they were in such excruciating pain. Now, that's not us. We would make an appointment with the urologist as soon as possible. All of this being true, how can Peter claim that his suffering people are, verse 8, filled with inexpressible and glorious joy? Is the apostle immune to the trials his people are experiencing? Is that why he says something like that? Does he not know that they are going through terrible times? I'm sure that Peter, who 
was told by the Lord himself that he would die a martyr's death and who was later himself crucified for his faith, I'm sure he had a full grasp of the trials his people were experiencing. But there's something worse to shun than the physical trials of this world, and that is the judgment to come. Our Lord put it this way, I tell you the truth, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and afterwards can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after killing the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Luke 12, verse 4 and 5. So how does Jesus comfort them? He says, you know, there's something worse. When you think about it, there's always something worse, right? Well, if we're realistic. Solomon put it this way, Old Testament now. Although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and he still lives a long time, I know that it will go better with God-fearing men who are reverent before God. Yet, because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. He's talking about the sundial. That was how they told time. The shadow isn't going to lengthen for them. That much I know. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 12. Paul writing in the New Testament says of God, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power on the day that He comes to be glorified in His holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 8 and following. Or John in the Revelation records what he saw from God. Here's what he saw. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And the lake of fire is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 20, verse 13 and following. Now every one of these realities, which are sure to come upon the unrepentant and unbelieving, every one of them, the Christian escapes through the mercies of Christ as Savior. And that is why we are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. God in Christ, his son, has dealt with every sin that brings condemnation. Isaiah puts it this way, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Isaiah 53. Verse 5. And Peter, alluding to Isaiah's prophecy, tells us he, Jesus, himself, 
bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. Paul writes it this way, there is now, there is now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Romans 8, 1 and 2. Or if you want it directly from the words of Jesus. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He's crossed over from death to life. John 5, verse 24. I love that verse. The words of our Savior himself. Have you crossed over from death to life? If so, then you have nothing to fear in this world or the next. Paul writes, but since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. First Thessalonians 5, verse 8 and following. God did not appoint us to wrath. Wow. It is because the believer has escaped all of these terrible coming judgments on unrepentant sinners that Peter can say that his people are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy it's a taste of the harvest to come right now we're experiencing these things he goes on to say that we are receiving the goal of faith which is salvation last week we pointed out that Peter most often refers to the future aspects of the believer's salvation those things not yet realized but are sure to come because of the promises of God. But here, he tells his people that at present, in the here, in the now, they are receiving the goal of their faith and love in Christ, namely the salvation of their souls. It is not true that salvation is simply a future reality. No, it's a present reality too, which carries its own benefits. One of which we've already seen by studying this glorious joy. Joy in knowing that the wall of separation between us and God, which consisted of our sin and rebellion, has been torn down by Christ himself, God's Son. 
Paul writes it this way, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Not just when you get to glory. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Titus 2, verse 11 and following. So Paul writes, Do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearance of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 2 Timothy 1, verse 8 and following. You'll note that we do not have to wait to be forgiven and cleansed of our sin. We do not have to hesitate to come before a holy and righteous God for fear that he will destroy us if we did. Paul says, however, to the man who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same things when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven. Not will be forgiven, but they are forgiven. Whose sins are covered. Are covered. Words have meaning, folks. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Romans 4, verses 5 through 8. Writing to the Ephesians, Paul says, Be kind, be compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God. Therefore, as dearly loved children and Live a life of love, just as Christ loved us. And he gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Ephesians 4, verse 32 and following. Are you receiving the goal of faith, which is salvation? If not, perhaps your faith has been placed on the wrong object. Faith in oneself is misplaced Faith. We got a lot of that in our society. Faith in the good that you do for others is misplaced faith. We have a lot of philanthropists in society. Truly like doing good things for others. Faith in your family's church attendance is misplaced. 
Roman particulars, counting on the church to save them. Faith in your prayers, in your church contributions, is misplaced. Faith in your intellect or logic is misplaced. Because God's thoughts are not your thoughts. The world through its wisdom and its works never comes to know God. Those are things that keep people from finding God. Because God has pledged himself to destroy the wisdom of the wise. That men of the most simple capabilities, even little children, may find Jesus as Savior. So if wisdom were the basis, that would rule out a lot of it. individuals, wouldn't it? And I would say this way, if you do not come to Jesus as a little child, with the innocent faith of a little child, with the fearless trust of a child... You will miss Christ and the salvation he promises to you now and for eternity. There isn't two salvations, one for little children and one for the adults. We have to come as little children, Jesus taught us. Now, do we need to mature? Don't we want our children to grow up? Yeah, and Peter talks about that, growing in the fear and admonition of the Lord, fear and knowledge of the Lord. Got a lot of scriptures in the New Testament in particular about how we're to grow up, mature in our faith. But that isn't what saves us. That's what happens as a result of us being saved. We want to know more about this wonderful Savior that we just except by faith as a little child. Here now is the ultimate test which proves to you once and for all if you are truly saved. I'm going to read it for you. One of the teachers asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment, still reading Christ's words, there is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. Mark 12, verse 28 and following. The test of the genuine believer is this. Do you love Christ? 
none but the saved can say, yes, indeed, I love him. Okay, then Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Our Lord, help us to really get a fix on this business of loving you. It's easy to say it. Oh, I love God or I love Jesus. But when the thought of it, obedience is attached to that as proof of love, that's when we begin to stammer and stutter and backtrack because we don't always have the obedience of love. We just have the words of love. Help us to understand this morning anyone can say the words. Have we not seen that in our own experience? Many times people have said to us, I love you. And yet they are those who have defamed us, ridiculed us, mocked us, spoken evil against us. But they said it. They had the words. It can happen with Christ. Oh, I love Christ. But there's no obedience of love. There's no truth in the words. Because there's no truth in the life. I'm thankful for the book of James in our Bible because he really lays it down. The brother of our Lord lays it down for us in clear ways that it's our deeds that prove our faith. It's what we do that shows that we really do have a love for Christ. It's not what we say. It's how we live our lives. Grant us that faith that's real. Help us to look into the mirror of your word, see our sin, repent of it, come to Jesus for cleansing and forgiveness that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the Brown Hymnal, number 378. 378. Is it the red hymnal? Oh, it does. Yeah. It's pretty good in the brown hymnal, too. (laughs) Okay. Three, seven, eight. In Trinity.
Amen. Tonight, continue in the um, video series on uh, modern day evangelists in our country. Say, so, well, why do we study them? They're heretics, yeah. But um, we study them because we want to know what they're saying. I'm sure you have friends and relatives that listen to them. They're on TV as well as in their big auditoriums, you know. They spend millions of dollars for broadcasting rights, and they're out there on the airwaves. So that's why we study them, and we want to know how best to confront the heresies of our day. See you tonight. We're dismissed. Yeah, I guess it's supposed to get windy. Oh, yeah.